Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Today's sermon is an absolute classic preached by the late Steve Heron in 1974 in Greenville, Michigan. I know you'll be blessed as you listen to this sermon that he titles, A Broken Spirit. If you have your testament in Psalms or Bible with you, I would invite you to turn with me to the 51st division of the Psalms. We will begin our reading in verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy, tender, to thy loving kindness and according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me truly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me against thee. Thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion, and build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar." That's reading the entire 51st Division of the Psalms. Would you join me in a moment of prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we are asking tonight in the name of Jesus and the merit of his precious blood 
that thou will take thy truth and seal it to our hearts by thy spirit tonight. Open our hearts to thy word, to thy truth. We thank thee for thy presence that is here. And we would give right of way again to the presence of God. Oh, unless thou dost help us, Lord, all is in vain. But we cast ourselves helplessly, hopefully, over on thee. Again, we ask that the Spirit of God will take truth and seal it to hearts and accomplish thy purpose to the glory of thy name. Amen. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. I feel sorry for those people who reject or who neglect the Old Testament. They are those who confine themselves principally to the New Testament. But I feel like they're missing some very gracious truths. Someone has said that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And in many, one of the very gracious lessons of the Old Testament of that of the Levitical sacrificial system. And there is contained in this sacrificial system of the Old Testament some very vital, some very gracious, some very blessed truths. We would not have time to go into them at length tonight, but suffice to say that there are some general lessons in this Old Testament sacrificial system for us. And here, what God has portrayed to us in the material, physical, human, earthly language and symbols, there is revealed in the New Testament the spiritual realities. And here in the passage, the psalmist seems to break through and see that really the important thing and the real lesson that God was trying to get across was not found in the bullocks and the goats and the lambs and the heifers they offered, that there was a spiritual significance to all this. So he said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. But I would like for us to look back into the Old Testament for a few moments tonight, and as I told them this afternoon, a few moments in a preacher's vocabulary has no relations to clocks, time, calendars, almanacs. It's just a preacher's saying. It doesn't mean a thing. So, but sometime between now and midnight, we want to look <laughs> into to this matter and see some things that are suggested to us out of this Old Testament sacrificial system and make its New Testament application to us in the words of the psalmist, sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. The first thing I want you to notice about an Old Testament sacrifice is that it was not humanly devised. It was divinely prescribed. 
Men did not offer what they chose, when they chose, how they chose, and where they chose. Rather, they offered what God said, where God said, when God said, and how God said do it. And the important lesson for us to learn there is that we must get back to God's word and go by God's divinely prescribed standards and methods. We are living in a day, if you'll allow a moment's digression here, we are living in a day when I do not recall in the, my lifetime at least, when there was ever a greater undermining and drifting from the authority of the Word of God. There have been times, I'm sure, back in the early days of the liberal, modernistic, conservative, fundamental controversy, when perhaps the fight to preserve and to maintain the integrity of the Word of God was more pronounced and the battle lines were more openly drawn but I don't think the danger was as great then as it is now because this insidious undermining of the authority of God's word is creeping in even into evangelical circles and even into the ranks of holiness people. When some serious reflections are being made on the divine inspiration of the word of God, and a lot of good people are swallowing it. But did you know the first deflection from the authority of God's word is not theoretical. It's practical. The first rejection of the authority of the Bible is not saying, I don't believe the Bible is inspired. I think it's got some errors in it. I think that there's some parts of it that are not inspired. No. That is where it starts. That's where it leads to. It begins with your or my or others simply rejecting the authority of God's word in some particular area of our lives or our refusal to take seriously something God has said in his word. And in our holiness ranks, we're rather selective in what scriptures we have particularly emphasized. Fact is, we have some pet scriptures that we make a great deal of, and we have some others we gloss over. I would like to say something tonight that I feel like is vitally important. We need to get down to some real, honest exegesis, interpretation of God's word and serious efforts at obedience to the same. Amen. Now all you laymen can shut your ears and turn off your hearing aids for a moment. But there's a lot of us preachers that are skipping over some things that are not being strictly honest with our people and our interpretations. 
don't look at it like that. We're afraid they'll misunderstand us. I tell you what we need to do is get back to God's Word and let it speak for itself, whether it agrees with you or me or anybody else. And a lot of folks that are very so vociferous about certain points, but they're loudly silent on other things that the Bible talks about. But it means a great deal to take it 100%. Of course, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking about that little pet scripture of yours right now or that everybody else don't agree with you on. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that when you aren't living up to <laughs> I'm talking about that when you gloss over <laughs> Well, that's free. You don't even have to put in $5 in the offering tonight for that one. But I hope you take it to heart. Yes. Or the, the thing that characterized this Old Testament sacrifice was the fact that it was divinely prescribed. God told them what they were to offer, when they were to offer it, how they were to offer it, and where they were to offer it. Then another very interesting thing. Let me, maybe I better get back to that point again. You remember when God gave this law to Moses, he not only took about the sacrifices, but an erection of the tabernacle. He said, See, saith he, that you build all things according to the pattern showed to thee on the mount. Build it like God showed it to you on the mountaintop. Oswald Chambers, I think, entitles it Living Up to Our Highest Light. Don't live like you're seeing it. Live like you saw it when you were the most blessed. When you were the closest to God. When your vision was the clearest. Your will was the most yielded. Other voices were the most still and silent. And you were in touch with God. How did it look then? You know, when you get up high enough, you can see things in proper perspective. You can see things how they fit. A friend of mine said he carried his children up on the top of Washington Monument a number of years ago, and his little boy looked down and said, Daddy, said, look at those little cars down there. He said, Phil, those aren't little cars. Those are regular. He tried to explain it, but it never really registered. For when Phil got down to the bottom of the tower again, he was looking for those little cars. <laughs> you see, things look differently from the heights. And a lot of things that are big look small because they begin to fit in the surroundings and the, you get the proper perspective of things. You can get a nickel so close to your eye you can't see anything else. And a lot of things can get so close and you get so preoccupied with it you can't see anything else. But God help us to get up on the mountain where we can see things in a proper perspective. How did you see it when you were on the mountain? How did it look 
I was preached along that text one Sunday morning in the church where I was pastor not more than 100 years ago. And a good woman, I think perhaps in her 70s, had been known as a woman of prayer, with weeping, said, Brother Heron, I've missed the pattern. I've missed the pattern. I wonder how many across the country would have to say that. I missed a pattern. A lot of folks are saying, well, I don't see it like I used to. I agree with them. They don't. I question whether they can anymore see it like they used to. Are you going with a pattern? You know what we need to do? We need to get back to the original pattern. If you've ever built anything, and I'm sure if any of you ladies have ever cut out a dress, you have to get back to the pattern. A fellow's cutting studs for a building or something, he can't just cut this one by the pattern and this one by that one and this one by that one and this one by that one. He's going to end up with some misfits before too long. The only way he can approximate is to get back to the original pattern every time and cut every one by the original pattern. You see, if I look at you and somebody else looks at me and somebody else looks at them, we're going to end up so far off that it's pitiful. But let's get back to the pattern. I said another interesting thing about this Old Testament sacrifice was the fact that when it was properly presented, it brought the approval of God and the presence of God and the power of God under the emblem and symbol of the fire and the glory. The first recorded incident we have in the Bible, I'm sure it was not the first because it seems to have been following a previous pattern, but the first recorded instant that we have of a sacrifice offered in the Old Testament was that of Cain and Abel. And the Bible said that God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but he did not accept Cain's. I submit to you, how did Abel know that his sacrifice was acceptable? And how did Cain know that his was unacceptable? Well, the Bible doesn't state specifically, but I think it teaches from the context of the whole Old Testament. I suggest that the reason Abel knew that God had accepted his sacrifice, the fire of God fell. And when Cain presented his sacrifice, there was no descending fire. There was no attesting approval of God. Nothing happened. The proper sacrifice was not offered. We see this same thing happening in Abraham's life. When God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you and to your seed the land of Canaan. And Abraham said, Lord, how will I know it? And God said, put the sacrifice out. And so Abraham built the altar. He put the proper sacrifice and beat off the birds of prey until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice and the fire of God moved in among the pieces on the altar, assuring Abraham that God had answered. 
It was Saul when Moses built the tabernacle and the same when Solomon built the temple. When they had built all things according to the pattern. Don't miss that, friends. According to the pattern. They presented the proper sacrifice. They prayed a prayer of dedication. And the fire of God fell and consumed the sacrifice. And the glory of God filled the temple in Solomon's case, and the tabernacle years previous with Moses. Both. Read it. The fire of God fell, and the glory of God filled the tabernacle when the proper sacrifice was presented in the proper way. The same thing took place when Elijah met the prophets of Baal. What was the test that Elijah proposed? The God that answers by fire, let him be God. You remember how the prophets of Baal put their sacrifice? They were earnest. They were sincere. But earnestness and sincerity is not enough. Human zeal is not enough. Why, those prophets of Baal had everything we have in a holiness movement many times and a lot more. You can't say they weren't sincere. They stayed at the job practically all day. That's more than we could get you and me to do. Amen. You couldn't say they were earnest, for they even cut themselves, lashed themselves, and were in a frenzy, yelling and pleading for Baal to come and answer by fire. But nothing happened. And then Elijah said, it's my time. We say sometimes that Elijah prayed the fire down. I'd like to differ with you. Now, I give you the privilege of being wrong if you want to differ with me. That's perfectly all right. And I told him today, no need falling out with a fellow that disagrees with you. You're doing the same thing to him. <laughs> So why fall out? You expect him to keep in a good humor with you, or why don't you with him? Amen. He hasn't done anything to you. You haven't done to him. <laughs> so if you want to disagree, you can be wrong if you want to. But I disagree tonight. I submit to you that Elijah did not pray the fire down. He sacrificed it down. You will know he built the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And he prepared the sacrifice like God had said for it to be prepared. And I assert tonight that if he had not, Elijah could have been praying till yet. There would have been no fire. I would like to confess to you tonight I need to pray more. <coughs> And what I'm saying is not meant to be a reflection on prayer. But I am also convinced that we are trying to substitute prayer for some proper sacrifices. Amen. And we'll never see the glory of God come or the fire of God fall until the proper sacrifices are submitted. Amen. 
And I wouldn't say anything to discourage our praying. But I do believe in all, with all my heart tonight that there are a lot of us friends that want to somehow make a magic talisman or open sesame sort of a magic word out of prayer that will substitute for our obedience to God. So Elijah put the proper sacrifice on the altar and prayed a prayer about that long and the fire of God fell. The difference between me and Elijah, maybe you, I don't know. You can do your own testifying. Too many times we pray prayers about this long without the proper sacrifice and nothing happens. But the fire of God fell, and the people cried out, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And I'm suggesting to you that the great need of our hearts individually, as collectively in the wholeness movement, is to see God come. Yeah. Just as we talked about last night. And the fire and the glory. That mysterious, indefinable, indescribable something we call the fire of God. That something, that intangible but yet experientially real something we call the glory. And it's more than human enthusiasm for Baal's prophets had that. It's more than human emotion. And I'm not decrying emotion right now. I wouldn't mind a little. <laughs> I wouldn't even mind a, a look of life on some of your countenances out there. Are you breathing? <laughs> but this thing we call the fire and the glory is more than human emotion. It's more than human zeal and earnestness and enthusiasm. Some people do not know the difference between having spirit in the service and having the spirit. But having said that, let me say to you tonight that our greatest need, as I understand it, friends, is to have the fire and the glory. Bobby said this afternoon, I guess we all ought to be a little bit hesitant just saying this is the greatest and that's the greatest, but let me qualify and say one of the greatest at least. Needs that we have is to have this fire and the glory. You can't describe it. And you can't standardize it. It's that peculiar, unusual something when God comes. Some of you may have known C.E. Zeit. His wife was one of our first teachers on Hope Sound. She and Brother Zeit moved down before the school ever started. She said, I heard there's going to have a school, so she came down to teach it before there was a student, before there was anything. But Brother Zeit told us when he was pastor in Barberton, Ohio, a number of years ago, they experienced a very gracious visitation of the Lord that went over some period of time. 
And God very graciously moved. He described one of those services like this. He said he arose to preach one Sunday morning. He never read his text. He never preached a sermon. Nobody ran the aisles. Nobody shouted. But there was that peculiar, indescribable something of the presence of God that settled down. Here and there, there would be a, a muffled amen or praise the Lord or hallelujah. And I'm sure there were tears, but there was a sense of awe and wonder at the presence of God. Without preaching, without singing, they finally left the service about 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Nobody went out laughing or cracking jokes. Nobody went out talking about how great the preaching was, for there wasn't any. They went out subdued, awed. Somebody say, wasn't that wonderful? Wasn't that great? And during this period of time, I don't mean that every service was that way. Oh, I just can't emphasize too much, friends. If God comes and blesses us in one way, we're, we're so stupid. We think he's got to do it that way every time. And we get our little molds built up. And the first thing they know, they become as empty and dry and dead as a last year's bird's nest. Down in Selma, Alabama, and everybody knows where Selma is. In one of our churches there a number of years ago, several good ladies one Sunday morning were blessed of God and got up and testified and God came and they had no preaching. But the the sad thing about it, the next Sunday those ladies got up again. And the next Sunday they got up again. And the next Sunday they got up again. And, they, and it didn't bless. It didn't break through. You see what I'm talking about? No ever service wasn't like that one Brother Zeit described. That's just a, a sample out of it. But he said during this time of God's unusual blessing, he met a fellow in the vestibule of the church had come, I think, maybe a hundred miles or more. And that meant a great deal more than today. But he said, man, what are you doing here? Oh, he said, we heard about it. We heard about it. And beloved, this glory of God, this fire of God, this blessing of God on our hearts and lives is two things. It's our protection and it's our attraction. I just can't imagine a church that was going through a period of time like they were going through that Barbican having to worry about worldliness. I can't imagine them having to call a special session to pass some rules to keep their people away from the picture shows. I can't imagine they're having to church somebody for running off somewhere else. No. I tell you when we get into trouble with the world in this, when we lose the fire, when we lose the glory, then things begin to look attractive on the other side of the fence. 
Why, brother? When God's blessing and when the glory is shining and the fire is burning, well, what does a fellow want to go to move his far? He's got something so much richer and better. What does he want to run off to a football game for? He's got something greater than What does he want to do this? Why? The glory, the fire. Praise God. And really, my friends, we're never going to be able to build fences high enough to keep our people. Everything else over the top. But it didn't stop him. But it's the glory, it's the blessing of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And I tell you, these young people here, you don't have to pass a lot of rules or have a lot of other things to keep them coming to the church and keep them from going out into the world. Get the blessing of God. Hallelujah. And I'm not saying that young people are going to have old heads and I'm not saying they won't have some fun. I'm not saying that, friends. But I'm telling you that the attraction of the movies and the ball games and a lot of other things will fade away when young people are really in love with Jesus and old folks have the glory and the fire of God and they're boosting and praying for them. Hallelujah. I never will forget when a group of us as young people in their teens got into the kingdom, started with God down in the little Westland church in Alabama years ago, the little tiny church on top of the hill. Everybody called it the sanctified church. I wish all our churches were sanctified, don't you? <laughs> but brother, I can remember it. Why? I loved the movies and loved these things, but when I got, can you imagine a fellow 16 years old that loved the dance and loved the movies and loved the things like it? Can you imagine a fellow with a Bible under his arm passing right by the movies and going up to a little holy church on top of the hill to a prayer meeting <laughs> and having a good time at it? Praise God. Hallelujah. And I wasn't first cousin of Methuselah. <laughs> I didn't have one foot in the grave and the other one on a banana peeling. <laughs> I was 16. Praise God. Hallelujah. The glory, the blessing of God. It's our safeguard. And it's our attraction. This is the thing that makes the world hungry. This is the thing that draws them. These people have got something. Why? It's kind of like wonderful. Said, hey, you over there, you would have them on your face. <laughs> Why, praise God. Hallelujah. Would they be attracted by me, by you? They come to our services. Has anybody made a hunger for God? And there again, I'm not just talking about physical manifestation. There's a spirit. There's a spirit. That's, while it isn't tangible and it can't see it, but you can discern the spirit in churches. When you come into a church and there's a spirit of love, 
And even sinners can sense it. I'd like to confess tonight. I've had some situations develop in churches where there became divisions and strife and cross. And sinners quit coming. You don't have to tell them. They just kept, they said, there's something wrong. What's the matter here? The glory isn't all. The fire isn't burning. That's right. That's Tension. Right. Tightness. Feelings. And a blind man can sense it with his walking stick. But it's when the glory of God, when the people's hearts are warm, the fire's burning. Oh, don't confuse this thing, friends, with just a lot of noise. Go ahead and shout. I'll quit for a moment while y'all run the aisles. Take turns. Don't run over each other back there. <laughs> but when the fire of God, there's the fires of God's love, the warmth of a service. You just sense it. And you don't have to be too close akin to Solomon. To discern it. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well you say preacher. If this is so important. If this is the main thing. If this is the thing that's a safeguard. And this is the thing that's our attraction. How in the world can we have it? The text gives us a very simple. And yet a very difficult prescription. Put the proper sacrifice on the altar. That's all. That's all you have to do. See when Moses built the tabernacle. And they put the proper sacrifice. Everything's in order. Moses didn't have to get out and work it up. He didn't have to cut himself like the prophets of Baal. He didn't have to say now come on folks. Come on let's get in the swing. Come on. Come on. No, he simply put it there and stepped back and said, Lord, here it is. That's right. And the fire of God fell. Hallelujah. And what did God say was a proper sacrifice? A broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart thou will not despise. Well, you say, preacher, what is a broken spirit? Well, there again, I don't know as I can adequately define it. Sometimes you can tell more by telling you what it's not. Brother French, whom all of you know, has a practice many times in holding revivals at churches and otherwise. He called the leaders of the church together, Sunday school superintendents, Officers of the church and Sunday school teachers and pastors say, let's have a time of humbling. Let's have a time of confession. Well, he did that down in Alabama in one of our churches. The fellow's kind of a bell sheep. He said, what you want me to confess? <laughs> That's not a broken spirit. That's not a broken spirit. You see, we've moved out of the realm of the goats and the bullocks and the lambs and the heifers 
in the New Testament. We've moved out of the realm of the physical, literal fire. we moved over into the realm of the Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost was fully come. They were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there was a sound from heaven like as of a mighty rushing wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. And it set upon each of them. And that's the last time we have any figure and symbol of fire in the Bible. It passed out of the symbol into the inner reality of the Spirit of God. And they were all filled with us. Holy Ghost. So it isn't a matter now of picking out the right calf and selecting the right bullock and getting the right lamb. It's a matter of coming with the right spirit. And it's the matter of just some physical fire coming down out of the sky. It's a matter of that unusual spirit and presence of Almighty God coming down into our hearts and coming down into our midst and coming down upon our services. What is the proper sacrifice? A broken spirit. A broken spirit. If I were to tell you tonight and you would believe me with some degree of credibility that if we would give a thousand dollars to missions here tonight, we could see God come. I expect we'd go through this and, and get it easier than you gave a while ago, much easier. If some of us had to take second mortgages on our cars or something else, you know, we'd get the money. But I can't promise you that. I would be surprised with the help. But I can't promise you that. I wouldn't be surprised if I tell you that if we would fast and pray and not eat or drink a bite from now tomorrow night, God would come and bless. There'd be some folks that would do it, in spite of your ulcers, in spite of your diabetes, and in spite of your lumbago and everything else, you would do it. I'm sure it would help. But God hasn't said when you give so many thousand dollars to missions. And he hasn't said when you fast and pray a day or two. But he has said the sacrifices that God will recognize are broken spirit. And on the authority of God's eternal truth tonight, I tell myself, I tell you, if we will put on the altar tonight, a broken spirit, God will come. Amen. Amen. The fire will fall. The glory will be manifested. In the first place, all that's introduction now for the sermon. In the first place, there must be a spirit of Brokenness in dependence upon God. As long as we think we can, God lets us try it and fail. And if we aren't careful, friend, there's always a little sneaking, 
underlying idea. Well, if God doesn't help, we'll do a little something anyhow. One preacher down in North Carolina, I think, said, is reported at least, he said he'd learned he could preach without God, whether God helped him or not. I can't. To pour out of it with the best. But, or we might make speeches. But we, just how much, friends, are we relying on God? Right. I remember O.G. Wilson asking at a leaders' conference one time at Waterloo, Iowa. He said, what is your church doing that it couldn't do if the Holy Spirit were taken out of the world. And a Baptist preacher out in Texas said something like this. He said that our churches could be carrying on 90%, I think he said, of what we're doing if there wasn't a God. Well, let me ask myself. Let me ask you something. Do you hear me back there? What is happening around your church and mine that couldn't happen without God? Well, man, we've had 30% increase in Sunday school. The Jehovah's Witnesses have beaten you all to pieces. Do they have God? Why, man, we have professions of religion every Sunday. A lot of those cults are beating us all to pieces. But, sir, you just don't know it. We shout and run the aisles. The tongues people are doing that. What are we doing at this? Actually, we just couldn't do if God didn't come. How much of our activities are marked by the supernatural? Really, how dependent are we on God? Well, if we get in the hole, our credit's good at the bank. If we need a new church, we can borrow the money. We all got good jobs. We're making more money than we ever made. Just how much are we dependent on God? But a broken spirit is that kind of a spirit that said, Lord, I'm utterly helpless. How do people get saved? By doing the best they can and get then God giving them a little boost that got them in? Is that the way you got saved? If you got genuinely saved, I'll tell you how you got saved. When you got to the end of yourself and said, I'm utterly 
absolutely helpless. I can't do a thing about it. I'm going to hell unless you save me. And God did it. And Paul said, as you have received Christ Jesus, so walk ye in him. And he said to those Galatians, if you receive the Spirit by faith, and faith is utter reliance on God, utter helpless dependence on God. And he said, if you got in that way, are you going to be perfected by works? Are you going to make it the rest of the way by your own effort? Broken in utter dependence upon the Lord. Broken in deep humility. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Anybody here need more grace? Anybody here candidate for God's grace? I'll tell you how to get it. Simple as it. Humble yourself. That's what it says. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. If I need more grace, then just go a little deeper in humility. It's just that simple. It's just that hard. Somebody has said that the holiest people are the hardest people in the world to get to humble themselves. Brethren, that ought not to be. We ought to be the first people to humble ourselves. My good friend A.T. Robertson tells of a good woman, a saint of God, who was married to just an old reprobate of a drunkard. She was desperate to see him saved, get him to God. And in her desperation and prayer, Lord, is there anything I can do to see my husband get saved? You know what God said to that good woman? Humble yourself. What? That good godly woman humble herself to that old drunk? Oh, I know you wouldn't. But she did. She just went in there where he was sitting and got down on her knees and began to confess her faults and ask his forgiveness, maybe for not being kind or more patient or whatever. Well, what did he do? I tell you what he did. He just slumped off the chair and on his knees and got to God. Why? Because a godly woman put the proper sacrifice on the altar and God came. And the fire of God fell. And the glory of God came. And an old drunk was swept into the kingdom by the power of God. Amen. Brother Robson said he himself had some serious difficulty with his throat. Could hardly preach. He was in his study praying. Lord, what can I do? And God said, humble yourself to your family. He went over, next time he got his family together and around the, the meal table, he humbled himself. He confessed his faults. He asked forgiveness of his family. He went back to see the doctor and he said, preacher, 
I've got good news for you. You don't have cancer. A preacher and his wife had a little child lying at death's door. The doctor said, I've done all I can do. If you want to get another doctor, it's all right with me. No, they said, don't leave us now. Well, he said, I've got to go. But I'll be back in a little while. If you need me, call me. And the preacher's walking the floor in desperation. His wife is crying out to God, evidently. And he said, Lord, what can I do? Anything I can do to see my child healed. God said, humble yourself to your wife. Now, he hadn't run out on his wife. But he turned to her and she turned to him. And they put their arms around each other's neck and confessed their faults and their where they hadn't been as kind or patient as they should have been. What? Don't look at me like that. Did you think I'm talking Greek? But they humbled themselves. Amen. And they looked around, and the little girl was better. And the doctor came and said she's going to get well. Why? Because a preacher and his wife put the proper sacrifice on the altar. And God came. Praise God. No, I'm not talking to somebody else. I'm talking to you. No, maybe I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to myself. I'm talking to all of us tonight, friends. It's easy enough to preach this. It's easier still to sit there in the pew and say amen. But it's another situation altogether to say, Lord, help me put the proper sacrifice on the altar. God, help us. I found this out from personal experience, friends. It's easy for us preachers to preach. But it's another thing for us to practice. We're made out of the same kind of mud you are. I remember a number of years ago, I had felt that I should enter a certain door of service that seemed to be opening. But the door was slammed in my face. It almost caught my nose. And if what I'd heard was true, which we, it usually isn't exactly the way we hear it, some things were done that just weren't exactly, I felt, scripturally and Christian ethics. And the fellow who was mostly responsible had been like a father to me. I was trying to hold a revival meeting in Knoxville, Tennessee. The pastor resigned. I had the parsonage to myself. <laughs> I was walking the floor and trying to pray, and it just kept coming back. He did you wrong. He did you wrong. 
And I couldn't say if everything of all I knew or had heard, I couldn't say he hadn't done wrong. Now, I'm sure maybe you would have been, some of you at least, or maybe all of you have been a lot smarter than I and quicker to catch on. But as I was walking the floor and praying and battling that thing, he did you wrong. He did you wrong. And I think I can truthfully say there was no resentment, nor, but yet it just kept coming back and coming back. But finally, the Lord just seemed to lift me over and above it. Very simply, he just simply said, you can love him anyhow. And by the grace of God, I could go back into that church where this happened and get blessed of God and meet that good brother and later found out things weren't exactly like I'd heard anyway. But no matter if they had been, God got me over and above it and beyond it. But that's simple. You can love him anyhow. Amen. Brethren, why is it that two ungodly lawyers can disagree on a courtroom floor and call each other everything but gentlemen, and you feel like you're about better call the sheriff, they're going to kill each other. And soon as the recess is sounded, they go out to dinner. Well, none of you would think they were long-lost brothers. But in our holiness churches, we can't disagree over the color of the curtain we're going to hang over the window without falling out and not speaking to each other for six weeks. God help us. I remember... A number of years ago, I was at General Conference, and Brother Van Warmer, Brother French, one, I think, had preached that morning. That's back when they had them to preach at General Conference. <laughs> but they preached that morning, and God settled in, and we just, in spite of what seemed to be an effort to keep having an altar service, we just piled in. By the scores, I guess, and by the hundreds maybe around that altar place to humble ourselves and seek God. Over here was a brother. He and I had been almost like Jonathan and David. I felt like he had taken away that I couldn't approve of. He wasn't standing exactly like I thought he should. I think I was right in that. And there'd come a kind of cleavage, you know. There's no ill will, as I know of. We weren't at each other's throats or anything of the kind, but there was a barrier between us. Kind of like I heard Brother Nicholson say one time. He said in his, one of his pastorates, it just seemed to be coming up a brick wall between him and one of his lay members. And finally he called a day of fasting and prayer for himself and sent for that good brother to come to the church study. And when he came, he told him, he said, seemed like the devil just telling me that you're just pulling off. Well, he said, he's telling me the same thing about you. And they went in each other's arms, and the barrel went down. My brother was kneeling over here. I was kneeling. But I went over. I could have said, well, I'm right. He's wrong. But that wasn't the issue. There was a barrier. There was a separation. I went over and I said, I'm sorry for this break of fellowship and this barrier and this thing. 
and tried to humble my heart, and the barrow went down, and the gulf seemed spanned. Praise God. Jonathan Goforth was holding, was a great missionary of a past generation in China, and his heart was ablaze for revival. He had read Finney on revival. And his soul was crying out for revival. But God said to him, what about that difference between you and that other missionary? Why? He said, Lord, you know we've got that fixed up. He came and apologized. But God seemed to say to him, you know in your heart you don't feel right. He went into the pulpit that midweek service fighting that battle in his heart. And he got in the brush and couldn't preach. Now you lay members need to look at us preachers so when we get in the brush... We find a lot of you folks in there when we get tromping around. He was planning to go on an evangelistic itinerary the next day, but he couldn't preach. He floundered. And finally in his heart, he just said, Lord, I'll fix it up. He said it was just like you had touched an electric current. The Spirit of God settled on that audience. And those hard, stoical Chinese, they had longed for years to see them break, began to weep and confess their sins and get right with God into the wee hours of the night. And that was the beginning of revival fires that swept all over that section of China. Why? Because one man put the proper sacrifice on the altar and the fire of God fell. You say, preacher, are you intimating to us that his holiness people that we're not I'm quite convinced that you're made out of the same kind of mud I am. I'm quite convinced that wherever you find people, they're just about the same. And I haven't found them anywhere yet, friends, but what there was usually some need, if not invariably, some need of humbling. On all of our parts. I frankly cannot understand the people that say, well, I don't see that I need, I don't have anything to confess. I don't have anything to humble myself over. That isn't my trouble. My trouble is keeping up with what I do see. Well, I'm saved and sanctified. You won't belong with that kind of an attitude. That's right. Amen. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. 
This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. Has been passed, has been passed, I don't